I'm going to describe a creature to you, and I want you to guess what it is. Okay? I want you to guess what this creature is. I'm going to give you a few clues. Um, the first is, this creature has two eyes and two ears. It's found on every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, most are wild. Sometimes they are domesticated. Anybody want to guess yet? Pardon me? Pardon me? No dogs, no. Let me go on. The creature has a relatively long neck, a rounded body. It feeds on grasses, plants, insects, worms, and fish. Any guesses now? Chow. I've got to give you a hug. How have you been? I got lost. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of our alumni. She was here how many years ago? Three. This is Oleona from uh, Ukraine. Yep. So, great to see you. You snuck in on me, didn't you? It's great to see you. I did. Oh, who's got a guest? Giraffe. What? A giraffe? No. No, that's wrong. Y'all stop. Don't guess anymore. Okay. You two guys don't guess anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, this creature is normally monogamous, breeds once a year, um, has a large variety of predators, including man, has feathers, two wings, two legs, two feet, and a bill. Now, who wants to guess? Pardon me? I can't hear you, Gary. A parrot. No, that's not right. What do you think? Chinelo. I'm positive. It's my sermon. I'm positive it's not an ostrich. I would know if it was an ostrich. You guys are you guys are getting close. Here's the ultimate here's here's the ultimate uh, seal. No. Goose. No. Here's the ultimate clue. What if I told you that it waddled and quacked? It's a duck, right? It's a duck. A slightly elongated neck. Well, you guys are tough. You guys are just, man, that's the last time I ever do that. You guys, you guys are just hard. You're a hard crowd, man. So you know the old saying, right? If it looks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, what? It's a duck. It's a duck. When you see a duck, you're never confused about what you're looking at. And when you hear the quack, you're never puzzled about uh, exactly what you're hearing. Uh, the same is supposed to be true of you. Uh, if you profess to be a Christian tonight, uh, you should have a distinctive talk and a distinctive walk. Um, staying with the duck analogy, um, is the ultimate clue to your spiritual identity the same as it is with the duck? Does everyone in your orbit know you belong to Christ because of the way you quack, we'll say, and the way you waddle? Everybody in your orbit is supposed to know you're a Christian. Just like when you look at a duck, you know it's a duck. When you see it waddle, you hear it quack, it's a duck. There's no question about it. It can't be anything but a duck. This is your testimony before the world. Christian, the world is supposed to know you belong to Christ. They're not supposed to suspect that you belong to Christ or have a suspicion that you belong to Christ. They're supposed to know that you 
belong to Christ. So let's say I'm an independent observer and my job is to watch you. And I have access to every aspect of your life. I can see how you live, talk, work, relate, socialize, how you spend your leisure time. I see how you spend your money, how you save it, how you give it. I can see how you love and support and serve uh, your local church. I see what you read. I know the music you listen to. I know the movies you watch. And I know the sites that you visit on the internet. I know everything about you. Would I conclude that you are a disciple of Christ? Or would I be very confused by what you say on Sunday, by how you quack on Sunday, and how you waddle on Monday through Saturday? Would I be able to conclude? No question about it. This woman, this man, they love Christ. Yeah, they're not perfect. They sin, just like all of us. But they love Christ. They're giving themselves away to Christ. They're serving Christ. They're making much of Christ. You know, you and I both know, if you've been around the church very long, you know that a lot of people like to quack <laughs> on Sunday. It's easy to quack. But what God's called us to do is go out there and not just talk the talk, but actually go out and walk the walk. A good friend of mine, some of you know him. Uh, he was here for a number of years. He's an American. He's now back in the States. He always used to say to me in Bible study, all the time, men's Bible study, talk is cheap, right? You've heard this. Talk is cheap. It's easy to talk. Jesus didn't call us to go talk. Yes, words are important at times. But ultimately, what you believe and what you love, it comes out in your life. It comes out in your deeds. It comes out in how you walk. Not simply in how you talk. I heard a famous preacher preach just uh, some weeks ago now. And he said this, If you were charged in the court of law with being a Christian, would there be enough hard facts to convict you? Could, could I compile enough evidence, hard evidence, that you're a Christian? Could I, could I get enough eyewitnesses that you, yes, indeed, are a Christian? Could you be convicted in, the, in a court of law by the way you live? Again, we're not talking about merely what you say. We're talking about how you live, how you act in the world. God means for everybody in your orbit to know you belong to Him. You know, I've said it to you many, many times. <laughs> there are no secret agent Christians. That is an oxymoron. You, you can't be an undercover Christian. God means for you to shine, right? He means for you to shine in the world and give testimony. Jesus said it, man, you're supposed to be salty. You're supposed to be luminous. You remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5? He says, God is not a secret to be kept. Are you keeping God a secret in your school or where you work? Or is it clear to everyone that you are a disciple? Eugene Peterson goes on to, to uh, as he paraphrases Matthew 5, he says, we're going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? 
I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine, He says. That's your job. Your job is to shine in the world. And you know how you shine the brightest, right? It's when you obey Christ. It's when you obey Christ and it costs. That's how you shine the brightest in the world. And people can't believe, why are you doing that? Why are you forsaking that? Why don't you go with us? That's the time you stand and you say, because I am a disciple of Christ. I don't just quack on Sunday. I waddle all through the week. You shine the brightest, beloved, when you're doing the Word of God. One of my favorite um, songs is, was written by a young woman. She's an American, and, and her name is Sarah Groves. Some of you may know her. She's a, a Christian singer and songwriter. And one of my favorite lines that she's written is this, something's changed inside me. It's broken wide open and it's all spilled out. Isn't that true? If it's real with us, if, if, if Christianity is real, if what's happened on the inside is real, it just spills out in the life. I mean, you can't really hold it in. I know many people try. But if it's real, it will spill out. Our love will spill out as we obey Him. And as we turn our back on certain things, as we forsake our sin. I love that line. I've always loved that line. It's one of the things God is, I think God is saying to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, if all this beautiful, supernatural, somewhat mysterious theology that we've been talking about in the, these first two verses for the, the last several weeks is true, if it's true... Hope you're looking at your Bible in verse 1. If it's true that we're aliens, if it's true that we're chosen of God, if it's true that we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, all this sovereign stuff that God has done in us will spill out. It will spill out. Everybody around you will know you're for real. <laughs> or they'll know you're not for real. I mean, the world knows, right? The world knows. Your friends know. Everyone knows. Your family knows if it's real or if it's not. So what does it say there in verse 2? Why is God... We've been talking about some heavy stuff. Some heavy doctrinal truths. So why has God done this God work? What does it say right there in verse 2? That we may... Someone tell me please from the text. That we may... What? What does it say? What's the end result of, of this God work in our lives? What does it say there in, the, in, the, in verse 2? Okay. Obey. That you might obey. God's done all this huge stuff. He's made us aliens. He's chosen us according to His foreknowledge. He sanctified us by His Spirit. That you may be a churchgoer. No! Church going's good. I heartily endorse it. That's not the end result. The end result is that you obey the Lord. Beloved, this is huge. It's huge. It's huge that we see this and that we understand it. 
We've been talking about this heavy theology, this weighty truth. I, I, I know some in the church, many in the church are scared of what God has to say about choosing and, and calling and electing and predestination. Many people get, get tense about this. I've never fully understood it, um, why people have a hard time with it. I really don't. Uh, but that's what we've been talking about the last... And this is the hazard of being a preacher that preaches verse by verse. You know, we don't... Sometimes I do topical things, but most of the time I just preach verse by verse. And so you just preach the next verse. And when the next verse says you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, if you have integrity, you deal with the verse. So why has God the Holy Spirit told Peter to encourage these suffering Christians? You guys know the background of 1 Peter. Uh, the Christians are suffering trial and persecution. And... Uh, I won't go into all the history of that. We've talked about that in the previous two sermons. But he begins this short letter encouraging and reminding these first century Christians and every Christian for the last two millennia who they are. He says, be encouraged. You're chosen of God. Beloved, we're supposed to know this even if sometimes we don't fully comprehend it. We're supposed to know it. And on a hard day, we're supposed to remember, I'm chosen of God. I will not be defeated. I'm one of God's chosen. He's told us this for a reason. Not just for seminary students to debate, but for you to live. You're supposed to live the fact that you're chosen, beloved. You're supposed to live that. That's why it says in verse 2 that you might obey Christ. Be encouraged. Even if you're being sawn in two, be encouraged. You're chosen. You're chosen, beloved. Don't run from it. Don't run from it. I know it's a hard truth. I know most churches don't preach it anymore. I know it can be divisive. But it shouldn't be any of those things. We're supposed to know we're chosen. And then we're supposed to live like we know we're chosen. Amen? So, that's, I think, one reason God has started this book the way He has. And I know I've said this in the first two sermons of 1 Peter, but it's so important I have to say it one more time. Persecution and trial comes into the Christian's life not because we are unloved, but because we are loved. We've been loved uh, from eternity past. Man, that makes my heart beat fast. We, are, we, we uh, suffer persecution and trial not because we are forgotten, but because we are ever-present in the mind of God. Not because we are forsaken, but because we are chosen. Not because we are neglected, but because we are elected. Not because we are abandoned, but because we are adopted. Beloved, you're supposed to know these things, even if you struggle with them a little bit. And the, two weeks ago, yeah, I think it was two weeks ago when we covered in detail chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, you have permission to struggle. These are weighty truths. You, what you don't have permission to do is, is to deny or, or reject or edit or reinterpret. That's what you don't have permission to do if you call yourself a biblical Christian. You have to deal with these truths with integrity. Peter was standing there that day when Jesus looked at His twelve and He said, You didn't choose Me. I chose you. And then Jesus said this, If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
If they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. Jesus says the world hates you for this very reason. I chose you to be Mine. Beloved, we're supposed to know this. <laughs> we're supposed to rejoice and give thanks. We are God's chosen people. And yes, we're supposed to go out in the world and live that reality. Again, two weeks ago, we spent the whole sermon. Last week, we had a special event. But we spent the whole sermon on the phrase chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And we looked closely at all the Greek words here. And we looked closely at some of the Greek words in other passages that talk about God's election. And we were able to clearly see what God means and what He doesn't mean. And I know many times a passage like this, when we start talking about the foreknowledge of God, many teach that God is merely looking down the corridor of time and He's seeing that I will choose Christ and then He elects me. Beloved, that's simply not what the Greek words mean. Study. All you have to do is have a lexicon. You don't have to be a seminary grad. That's not what the Greek words mean. They don't mean that. I told you a couple of weeks ago. It'd be like linguistic trickery. It's like an earthly king decreeing that the sun will come up in the morning and then taking credit for it. That's what it's equivalent. That's what it's equivalent to. So we know if we will take time to look deeply into God's Word, the problem with the, the, problem with the uh, view that, um, yeah, God's looking down the corridors of time, <laughs> it's just, you can't justify it biblically. So I want to encourage you, if you've been taught that, then if you call yourself a Christian, you go study your Bible. And you find out all the places where the word foreknowledge or foreknown is used. And you find out, you go to a Greek lexicon and you find out what it means. Clearly, God is not foreseeing an event, namely that I would come to Christ. He is foreknowing and foreloving one of His elect. This is the clear teaching of God's Word. I know that many hate it. Many men reject it. Even many who call themselves Christians, they reject it. They will not hear it. They do not like it. I don't like that God does that. It offends my sensibilities. That doesn't sound fair to me. Well, we'll get into that just in a minute. We understand that there's much friction with respect to these truths. And many, again, will not teach it. I, if you missed that sermon two weeks ago, I encourage you to go out on the podcast site and listen to it. Just go out on the podcast site and listen to it. If you have questions, email me. Que I, can't, I, I don't guarantee that I can answer your questions. You will ask me questions that God chooses not to answer. So there will be times when I can't answer your question. But if you have one, send it to me. I'll, be, I'll do my best. One of the excellent questions I got uh, two weeks ago was, if God elects and predestines some, is that unjust to those He doesn't elect? Now that's a good question. God actually answers that question. Some of you know where. Right in the middle of Romans chapter 9. The question is raised. Is God unjust in this? And Paul says, no. And then he says this. Romans 9, 14-18. Paul says, I, 
God's answer is, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. I have mercy on whom I desire, and I harden or judge whom I desire. This is God's answer. Is He unjust? No. Why? Because God says so. God says, I have mercy. And He used Moses. Moses is cited there. Mercy got, uh, Moses got mercy. Pharaoh got judgment. Did God, was God unjust with, with, with Pharaoh? No. Pharaoh got justice. Nobody gets injustice. If we understand our Bible, some get mercy. Some get justice. Nobody gets injustice. I know this is difficult, but listen, uh, I respect you enough to just teach the Bible, right? You know, I respect you enough to, to try to be candid with you. And then we know what the text says. The Holy Spirit prompts Paul to include that famous rhetorical question, verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. You will say then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? Obviously, the Holy Spirit anticipates our fallen reasoning and our disapproval of how God runs His universe and saves His people. What is God's answer in Romans 9 verse 20? God says this, On the contrary, who do you think you are questioning me? You know what I've heard many times, beloved, as a pastor for, for nine years in this place, and even as a vocational minister many, many years before that, I hear many times these backhanded accusations against God. You know, it's styled in a question, but what it really is is a backhanded accusation that God is unjust. If God does elect and God does predestine, that's not fair. This is what happens in, in the mind of, of, of many of us. God says, you're going to question me about how I run my universe? You're going to question me about how I saved my people? Really? Remember what he told Job? Gird up your loins. Job, where were you when I created the foundation of the world? Beloved, you're out of your league. If you start questioning God, how He runs His universe, how He saves His people, you are out of your league. You may remember Paul goes on to say, Will the thing molded, not say, uh, the thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Does, does the clay speak back to the potter? This is what God's Word says, beloved. God says, who do you think you are questioning me? And essentially God says, hey, next time you see the clay talking back to the potter about what he's doing and how he's doing it, then you come talk to me about how I saved my people. So next time you see inanimate clay speaking, you have permission to get in God's face. Until then, my suggestion to you, Isaiah 66, 2, be humble, contrite, and tremble before God if you have to. But you be humble and contrite with the Word of God. Yeah, it's okay to tremble. It's not okay to question God about these matters. He has spoken clearly about these matters. Beloved, don't you dare be arrogant. How arrogant. Do you see the, the picture of arrogance here? That the clay is speaking back to the potter? Do you see it? This is the clear picture that God is drawing here for us. Obviously, there are legitimate questions throughout uh, the study of the Bible. Obviously, but sometimes, beloved, it becomes 
a backhanded accusation. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, we are prone to ask more questions than God chooses to answer. There is a great danger that our questions will pass over into accusations. Someone might say, well, Jim, are you telling me that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign in salvation? And are, doesn't the Bible also teach that man is responsible in salvation? The answer is yes. The Bible teaches both of these things. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that you are responsible. The Bible teaches both of these things. Someone might say, well, I can't fully reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in my mind. I feel some tension in my mind. Of course you feel tension. <laughs> of course you do. This is infinite mind speaking to you. you got two and a half pounds of gray matter. You think you can keep up? You think you're in a position to question God and quiz God and accuse God? Beloved, stop it! Isaiah 66.2 Be humble. God says, I look to this man and this woman, the man or woman, who will be humble and contrite before Me. And yes, if they need to, they will tremble at My Word. Beloved, it's enough for me. And I told the congregation two weeks ago, I struggled for a few decades about this. I had a couple of you came up to me and shared, hey, I've struggled with this myself. But I've humbled myself under the Word of God. It's like I told you a couple of weeks ago. Man, when you get to a hard thing in the Bible, you just receive it by faith. And then you just go to work on it. You just keep working on it. Teach me, Holy Spirit. Teach me, Holy Spirit. Teach me, Holy Spirit. I don't get this. I don't like this. Teach me. Teach me. It's important that we have that attitude, beloved. You know, the fact that this perfectly reconciles in the infinite mind of God, that really should be enough for me. And it really should be enough for you. It doesn't matter if you can work it out in your two and a half pounds of gray matter. It doesn't really matter. Christianity has never been about full understanding. Christianity has, been always, has, always been, has always been about being fully persuaded that He is God and He is good. So, how does the Bible believer answer this question? Does God choose man or does man choose God? How do we answer that question? He's right. Did you hear what he said? Go ahead, Josh. Yes! Yes! That's what the Bible teaches! <laughs> When that question is asked, you know the answer. Yes, God chooses His people. Yes, man must choose God. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, man is responsible. Yes! That's what the Bible teaches. You say, it hurts my head. That's okay. God's got it under control. It reconciles perfectly in the infinite, holy, omniscient mind of God. So, my challenge to you many, many times when you come in here is, hey, hey, let's let God be God. Who's in favor of that? And you just try to be who you're supposed to be. I think it's important, beloved. I think that it's important. I've never understood those who demand to understand God's revelation completely and fully. One, it is impossible. You're out of your league. <laughs> He doesn't explain everything. He reveals Himself lovingly and graciously. He doesn't fully explain everything. The Bible is not His explanation. The Bible is His revelation. It's not a textbook. It's a letter from God 
to the world and to His people. One of, the, one of the old Puritans used to say it like this, a comprehended God is no God. If you think you've got God in a little box and you can understand Him, you don't know Him yet. If you think you've got Him in a box, you don't know Jehovah. You're not dealing with Jehovah God if you've got Him in a little box and you can completely understand all that He says, all that He does. That's not the biblical God. It's not the Christian God. Trying to fully understand God and all that He has said to us, it won't get you very far. But believing, submitting, embracing, loving, and acting on His sovereign will, it will take you far. It will take you far with Jesus. Peter saying to the suffering Christians, don't forget your God is God. Don't forget your God is sovereign. Really, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, they are the cliff notes for Romans 8. Many of you are familiar with Romans 8. Maybe one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. You know what God tells us in Romans 8, right? And these guys that are reading 1 Peter, the, the, the people that he wrote to, they've read Romans. They know what Romans 8 says. Romans was written five years before this book was written. They know what Romans 8 says. What does it say? What does it say? It says, if you're God, we sang it. If our God is for us, what? Someone tell me. Who can be against us? Who will bring, ultimately, who will bring a charge against the elect of God? We know that God will work all things or cause all things to work together for good, those who love Him, those called according to, to His purpose. Romans 8 also says this, many of you will know it, if you know your Bible, that we are adopted children of this God. Verse 15. We are foreknown, we are predestined, we are called, we are justified, we are glorified. Verses 29 and 30 in Romans 8. It's a done deal. God did it all. We know also that the Holy Spirit and God the Son are interceding for us. Verse 26 and verse 34. Do you see why, do you see why Peter starts like this? He's encouraging a people who are being uh, persecuted or in the midst of deep trial. And he says, remember how awesome your God is. Remember how awesome your salvation is. Remember who you are. I'm just trying to make a point, beloved. You know, Peter did this for a reason. The Holy Spirit led him to do this for a reason, to open like this. And listen, on the hard, on the hard day, you need to remember these things. You may not fully understand them all, but you need to remember them all. That your God is awesome. And He's done a mighty work in you. You are His. You, what else does Romans 8 say? You are adopted. How can you not love that? You are adopted. <laughs> you are adopted. Let's move on. We'll finish. Verse 2. We see the Trinity here, do we not? Do you see the Trinity in verse 2? Not only does He say your God's awesome, He says your God's Trinitarian. He says, he says and, 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 the, and God is wholly involved in your salvation. God the Father chooses, God the Son redeems, God the Spirit sanctifies. I think it's God's way of saying, I am wholly committed to the salvation of my people. I absolutely love this. I think it's beautiful. And we are held by the power of the triune God. 
God, beloved, we're supposed to, we're supposed to, even if we struggle, we're supposed to embrace these things and live out these things. These big God truths are supposed to affect the way we think and the way we live. If we really believe that God has foreloved us and has chosen us and has predestined us and has saved us like this, if we really believe this, we will live radically different than if we do not believe this. Radically different. I've said it several weeks ago. When we, once, once we begin to receive these deep truths into our heart, it will change your life. <laughs> it will change the way you see the world. It will change the way you see yourself. It will, it will change the way uh, you do ministry in the church and in the world. You realize that you're Batman. You can do anything. Spiritually speaking, you're Batman. You're bulletproof. Your God is God. You say, well, wait a minute, Jim. In Hebrews 11, Isaiah gets sawn in two. That's right. In the providence of God, sometimes His people are martyred. But that's God's business. That's God's business. So, briefly, look here. The Holy Spirit, we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, this is an allusion, obviously, to uh, being born again and made holy by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. He borns us again. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must go to church to see the kingdom of God, right? Is that what he said? You don't know what he said. You must be born again. So how does a man be born again? How do you born yourself again? You can't born yourself again. You can't do it. So how can a man how can a man decide he wants the kingdom of God if he can't see the kingdom of God without being born again and he can't born himself again? Beloved, we're seeing the huge sovereign mystery of God and how He saves His people. Again, this is a, this is a part of it. Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead, but God made us alive. We were dead, but God did that. God made us alive. It's what I've said to you many times. It's the whole Lazarus thing. Every Christian is Lazarus. Every one of us is Lazarus. We were dead. And Jesus called us out. That's how miraculous your salvation is. It's not that you made some decision with your own finite temporal reasoning. It's not simply that. There's something much deeper and more beautiful going on in the salvation of God's people. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's a stench in the nostrils of God when His church will not preach His sovereignty in the salvation of His people. Beloved, salvation is for the glory of God. Ultimately, for the glory of God, it's not for the glory of man. He's arranged it so no man can what? Someone tell me. Boast! If we rightly understand what the Bible's teaching about salvation, all we can do is get on our face and worship this awesome God. The Holy Spirit does that heart transplant. He turns that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He gives us faith, Ephesians 2.8, and He grants repentance, uh, 2 Timothy 2.25. It's that great sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, 
which we've done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. And God says, I've chosen you and I've sanctified you. It's in the text. We've already talked about it. That you might obey Jesus Christ. He says it again over, look real quick with me if you would, over in chapter 2, verse 9. He says it again. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, uh, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. It's not about you calling out to God. It's about God calling you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. You were chosen. You were called. Do it. Obey the Lord. Give yourself away. Totally, completely, utterly, wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y. That's what it means to be a Christian. None of us do it perfectly. None of us do. We all must confess our sin and failings. All of us. That's what grace is for. We confess our sin to the Lord and the grace rains down that He has provided for us. God calls us out to obey Jesus Christ. It's what we talked about at the Young Adult Bible Study um, Thursday night. How do we keep from wasting our life? Can anyone tell me from the young adult, young adult Bible study? Can anyone tell me how we keep from wasting our life? Anybody remember? Pardon me? That's a good answer, Krista. Seek God. Make much of Jesus. If you don't make much of Jesus in your marriage, in your career, in how you raise your kids with your money in your church, if you don't make much of Jesus in every sphere of your life, you're wasting it. You are wasting it. That's why you were created. That's why you were redeemed. To make much of Christ. To live as Christ. To die as gain. The problem is most of the church does not believe that. They don't believe that. They believe Christianity is something I do in my spare time. If I can fit it in my schedule. Right? Beloved, that's not even in the same universe with Christianity. Biblical Christianity. We are called to be disciples. And if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. You, you can be a church member. You can be a church goer. But if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. You're playing a game. You are playing a game. And it doesn't matter what we do. Businessman, housewife, student, doctor, plumber. It doesn't matter. Preacher, it doesn't matter. You're just supposed to smell like God while you do it. <laughs> you know, it's that 2 Corinthians chapter 2 thing. We're supposed to be the sweet aroma and the fragrance of Christ to the world. Real Christians don't just quack on Sunday. We waddle Monday through Saturday. That's who we are. It's not about performance-based religion. It's about how we love Him. You cannot be a Christian if you do not understand John 14, 21. One of my favorite verses. You can't be a Christian and you're not a Christian if you don't understand John 14.21. And you're not giving yourself to John 14.21. John 14.21, Jesus says, If you love Me, you will what? Keep My commandments. Do you love Him? Are you keeping His commandments out there? That's the whole, that's the whole sermon. He says, I've chosen you! I've sanctified you. I've redeemed you that you will obey My Son in the world. Everything else is a big number two. That's number one. Everything else is way down here. I know we have subordinate responsibilities, of course. But 
They're way down the, the list compared to loving Jesus and obeying Jesus. Let me tell you real quick, and we're, I'm done. I don't know how long I preached. I'm sorry, I forgot to look at the clock. Um, what does this mean right here? Sprinkled with the blood of sprinkled with his blood. This is very unusual language. We know we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus here at the end of verse two. Sprinkled by the blood. I believe this is a clear allusion to what Moses did in Exodus chapter twenty-four. You may remember Moses pro- proclaimed the word of God, and the people said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient." Moses makes a sacrifice. He sprinkles some of the blood on the altar. Then he sprinkles some of the blood on the people. This is the only time in Scripture this ever happens. It's the only time Moses does this. It's the only time. And what we see here is a covenant. A covenant between God to save and His people to what? Someone tell me. Obey! That's why it's here, beloved. That's why it's right here. It's a covenant with God. If you're a Christian tonight, you've made a covenant with God. Again, we don't obey perfectly. But He is a faithful and forgiving God. And He forgives. That's part of His covenant. Grace and mercy and forgiveness is part of His covenant. So we know we're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by sovereign grace. But if we are indeed saved by sovereign grace, obedience will come. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. The works are always there. James chapter. We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We have to become disciples because we are saved. We can't help but quack. And we can't help but waddle. We are so in love and in awe of this God. I dare you to stop me from quacking. This is why I have the job I have. I can't stop quacking. The Gospel's so awesome and He's so awesome. Beloved, I want you to get jazzed up about it. Don't let Christianity be religion to you. That's a stench in the nostrils of God as well. Man, it's supposed to make our heart beat fast, beloved. It's supposed to make our heart beat fast and we're supposed to go out in the world and live it in such a way that people see us. And they're they're attracted to how we live. They want to know, how can you live like that? Why do you live like that? It's our chance to, to do our evangelism. So why does God start 1 Peter with these weighty truths, it's because you're supposed to know He's God and He's awesome. And you're supposed to know, even if you don't fully understand, that He has saved you the way He has saved you. We're supposed to believe these things and we're supposed to live like we believe these things. Is there some mystery here? Of course there's mystery here. Any of you who have all your theology worked out and there's no mystery left, you've made a mistake. You don't have it all figured out. You guys know what the Scripture says. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's the intended and proper effect of knowing these weighty truths about election, predestination, being chosen, being called. Here's the the intended effect, the proper and intended effect. I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon, famous 19th century English preacher. Just listen and I'm done. Nothing under the influence of the Holy Spirit can make a Christian more holy than the thought that he is chosen. That's true. He says, Shall I sin after God has chosen me? Yes, we sin, but it grieves us. 
We confess and He forgives us. Spurgeon goes on. Shall I transgress after such love? Shall I go astray after so much loving kindness and tender mercy? No, my God. Since You have chosen Me, I will love You. I will live to You. I will give Myself to You. And I will be Yours forever, solemnly consecrating Myself to Your service. There's Christianity. This is why you're supposed to know these truths. Even if you struggle with them, you got permission to struggle. You don't have permission to reject. This is the Word of God. If you have questions, I'll try. <laughs> I'll try to answer them. Feel free to shoot me an email or call me or whatever. I guess you probably have noticed that uh, the elements are out. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight. Um, we have open communion here. So all who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to partake of the elements. The way we do this is Angela will come and uh, she will do a song for us. Prepare your heart to come to the table. We know what Paul told the Corinthians, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Confess your sin. Prepare your heart. And remember, listen, we, we can't even begin to understand the fullness of our own salvation. I implore you, come and worship. This great salvation that started in eternity past, before you were in your mother's womb, God loved us. God set His heart on us. And then He came in the flesh. What I'm saying, beloved, come and celebrate this awesome salvation. Confess your sin. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Confess your sin. Prepare your heart. Come to give praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, while the song is going on, uh, go up, get the, the cup and the bread, go back to your seat. After the song ends, I'll read a, script, I'll read a text, and then we will partake. Okay?